It's an interesting thing to reflect on uh, what it means to live a spiritual life or to be a spiritual person. What you're like when you're spiritual. Usually, spirituality is contrasted to that which is temporal, daily or mundane. It's kind of spirit in contrast to fleshy, corporal being. And in many religious and spiritual traditions, the work at hand is to disentangle ourselves from the messy, gross world of being to live on some transcendent level of experience. So this is a model kind of of thinking whereby the world is a trap. And our job is to get out of that trap. And it can become a fight, that we're fighting what's evil. We're fighting the shadow or the demons inside ourselves or around us in order to escape from the maya, escape from the trap, and become free. It's a problem because the very things that spirituality are contrasted to are what we are. We're embodied. You know, we're embodied beings with desires and fears just like all of living creatures. So in a sense, this kind of hierarchical view of spirituality versus whatever sets us against ourselves. You see what I mean? It kind of turns us on ourselves. We're not right or okay as we are. We need to be different, be better. In Buddhism, as with many spiritual traditions, the teachings were one thing, but the cultures that they were um, preserved in were different. And in, and in Buddhist countries, as with many countries in the West, there was a patriarchy and a monastic tradition that preserved the teachings. And in a sense, interpreted the Buddha's teachings in a certain way that now, when we receive them in the West, can sometimes bring us uh, bring up questions or misunderstandings that I think are important to address. One of them that I find often coming from friends and students and that I found in myself was what's really the meaning of being detached? I mean, do we really want to be detached from this world? That doesn't sound like fun. You know, what about taking pleasure in this world? I don't want to be indifferent. And that's sometimes the meaning that's made out of this idea of being detached. If we feel that being in the world is a trap, is dangerous, is bad, then detachment certainly sounds like, let me remove myself from that messy stew, right? But the spirit of the Buddhist teachings was not that at all. When the Buddha talked about being free from attachments, he was talking about being free from our attachments to a limited sense of ego self. Do you see the implications of that? That if we're not attached to just a small sense of who we are, it frees us to really belong to all of who we are, and to belong to the world and each other. So this, this 
principle or teaching about non-attachment is not to remove ourselves from the world at all. It's to free us from a narrowness, a grasping that stops us from really participating fully. The Buddha taught that our experience is one of relatedness, that however we experience this moment, it can only be understood in relationship to the rest of the universe. And this teaching was called Dependent Co-Arising. It teaches that all manifestations of life are interdependent and mutually conditioning, meaning every thought, every action, every sense we have of ourselves, of each other, anything that happens is affected by the rest of the universe, is created out of and reflecting of and part of the rest of the universe. There's an image from the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is called the jeweled net of Indra. And it's a beautiful image of this net. And at each of the junctures, or knots at the net, is a jewel. And each jewel is reflecting and illuminating each other jewel. And this is the web of life that we live in. We exist in relationship. One easy way I find that this truth is apparent to us in a kind of interpersonal way is when we reflect on the difference that we have when we're with, let's say, a person who is intimidating, critical, angry. Our whole feeling of who we are when we're in the presence of that kind of person versus when we're with somebody where there's a real sense of being included and accepted and embraced. Do you know how that is that different people in your life bring out different parts of yourself? And some can be really distinctly different, the experiences we have of who we are with different people. And that's just the influences of people in our lives. And there's everything else that influences us at every moment. When we look closely, we really look closely, we sense that every moment, the way the Buddha described it is, this causes that, that you cannot sense a moment of separate existence apart from the influences of the rest of the universe. We see this and understand that when we start looking closely at fragile ecosystems, right? It becomes fascinating when we look at broad weather patterns. You know El Nino, right? Most of you know about El Nino. El Nino is the weather pattern that originates in the Pacific Ocean, and it's a warming pattern, and there's usually a lot of thunderstorms that go on. And two years after there's this particular constellation of events, of warming and thunderstorms, this is the effect on the rest of the world from one little spot on the Eastern Pacific. This is what happened last round. Strong storms and flooding on the west and Gulf coasts of the United States and a heat wave and drought in the Midwest drought and forest fires in Australia and Indonesia, severe depletion of the ocean fish catch off the west coast of South America, drought in northeast Brazil, floods in the south, drought in India and parts of Africa, including Sahel, a wet summer and prolonged monsoon season in Japan, a wet spring and hot summer in Europe, 
a drought in Spain, and Portugal. How can we even question the interdependence or interrelationship of everything? Chief Seattle writes, this earth is our mother. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons and daughters of the earth. This we know. All things are connected like the blood which, un which unites one family. We did not weave the web of life. We are merely a strand in it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. The source of all the, any spirit of being environmentally conscious comes from that sense of really that we belong to this earth. It's an illusion to sense ourselves as separate out of the context of our larger family, our larger universe. Our appearance and experience in this moment is conditioned by and reflected through all other sparkles of the net, our strands in the web. Now this has big implications, because when we think we're separate, when we get caught in that illusion, our life gets organized around it in a way that we feel threatened by an outside world that's separate from us. We begin to control. We try to hold on to things to enlarge and strengthen our sense of safety and self, and we defend. When instead, we relax into a natural sense of relatedness. And we've touched this, each one of us, with another being, our group of people, our in nature. There's a beautiful sense of relaxation and belonging that arises, of true enjoyment. It's the only real definition of enjoyment, that sense of belonging. Wisdom and love are possible. Our path is really awakening to this sense of relationship, to this sense of belonging. We awaken to belonging in many domains. We awaken to belonging just to this moment, that we can sit here and say, this moment, I belong to this moment. I'm not leaning into the future, remembering the past. I belong right here. And to this place, whether it's this room or this environment around this room, the trees, the grasses, the rains, the winds. I belong to these people in my life. I belong to this inner being, this inner life I experience. This moment I belong. Mary Oliver writes, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to you, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, wondrous, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. We belong, and our pain and our suffering is when we forget, when we don't realize that. So it's our conditioning to forget, to resist, to try to control, to think we're separate, and it's our practice to remember, just to come back to sensing we belong. So a closer look at these domains that we can 
really discover the joy of belonging. In practice here, in class and retreat and other times, many of you have begun to explore what it means to really allow the inner weather of our being to be there, to bring kind, present attention to the different moods that arise, to physical difficulty, pain, discomfort. So one of the domains that we become intimate with, that we begin to sense we belong, is we belong with these bodies, with these minds, with the different moods or weather systems that go through. And we discover that when we don't sense that, when there's a rejecting, a pushing away, that that's really where suffering begins. (coughs) A client I was seeing several months ago, uh, his story just so much illustrated to me what happens when we disconnect from ourselves, when we don't make room for our moods, our emotions. And he had a history of abuse, a very, not only a judgmental, but a physically abusive father. And he came to me, he was doing some meditation and wanted to know how to use meditation to work with his reactions to people in his current life because anyone that he encounters that seems critical to him, especially in work situations, uh, what happens is he shuts down in a way that he goes numb, he gets paralyzed, you know, his personality gets paralyzed and he says he becomes stupid. He's just not able to, he just, just becomes dysfunctional when there's critical energy around him. Now, most of us have that one to some degree. Most of us do not operate on all cylinders when we're facing criticism and anger. Is that true? <laughs> okay, I wanted, but his was, was re- actually a really, uh, was, I opened my eyes some because it was so extreme how what would happen is he'd sense this, you know, criticism from the outside and it would trigger off this inner sense of something's wrong with me, something's wrong with my li- the life within me, and then there'd be this disconnect and shutdown. And then he'd try to operate, you know, the way he thought he should, but not be feeling his body, not feel any emotions. He was just kind of dull, numb, cut off. You know what it's like when we when we're not able to stay with ourselves and it actually never works. We cannot relate, have any true contact with another when we're not connected with ourselves. We try. Spencer Tracy writes, learn your lines and don't bump into the furniture. (laughs) That doesn't. (laughs) So we worked on this he and I for a while using really just the intention to come back and pay attention with some kindness to to the fear because that's what it is to ask that question which is so beautiful and I encourage you to ask which is what's so difficult to accept this moment what's that part of me that's wanting to be accepted or included in awareness At any given moment when you ask that question, what's asking for acceptance or what's difficult to accept, it naturally brings your attention to include what's been resisted. Very powerful. So we did that, but in a gentle way. So we know what it's like when we're cut off from ourselves, how difficult it is to feel any real sense of connection with others. 
And we know how when we're feeling good with ourselves, what happens? That we're able to begin to sense belonging with each other, with other people. And it also, there's that way in which when we discover the people that help us to most be at home with ourselves, those are the ones we're really attracted to. It's a very beautiful reflection to ask yourself, with whom do I feel that I belong right now in my life? Where is there a sense of belonging? (coughs) Who do I feel at home with? We all have that longing to belong. And yet, sadly, when we look close, we can feel a lot of isolation. Who do I belong with? (coughs) Mary Oliver writes, Once only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly, and with the tenderness of any caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass, in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them, in my dream I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. This longing to belong is very deep in all of us. And there's a sense of real loss when we feel that we're moving through our lives and going through making the motions of being a part of. Anne Morrow Lindbergh writes that the most exhausting thing in my life is being insincere. You know that feeling that, you know, just not quite fully who we are in a situation, and there's this real, it's just very depressing to feel that we're not sincerely fully who we are. It can be really interesting to interview people that have been to a party and find out that almost everybody felt that they were an outsider at the party. (laughs) We mostly feel that. There's a few people whose personalities allow them to feel like they're at the hub, but not many, you know? Even surface differences that we, that we perceive in each other, uh, different kinds of clothing, are perhaps speaking a different language, can, can in some way feed that, that fearful tendency to think that we're different from other people. I just ran into this. This is a um, description of announcements on church bulletins that were English signs in uh, foreign countries. So these are churches in other countries that had English signs on their bulletins. This is what they said. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. (laughs) (laughs) Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and our community. (laughs) Thursday, there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All wishing to become little mothers, please see the minister in his study. (laughs) <laughs> I 
I like this one. This being Easter Sunday, we asked Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> So we incline towards feeling separate and distanced for whatever the reasons, and we really long for and hold on to those times that there is a sense of at-homeness, of belonging. This is written by Mark Van Doren. A boy named Eddie Schell came one afternoon to play with Frank and me, and at the hour for going home did not know how to do so. This is a malady that afflicts all children, but my mother was not sure how she should handle it in Eddie's case. She consulted us secretly as to whether he should be asked to save for supper. We thought not, so she hinted to him that his mother might be expecting him. He was so slow in acting upon the hint that we were all in despair and began to feel guilty because we had not pressed him to stay. When I remember now, what I remember now is Eddie standing at last on the other side of the screen door and trying to say goodbye as if he meant it. My mother said warmly, well, Eddie, come and see us again, whereupon he opened the door and walked in. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? <laughs> It's really our greatest happiness, those times when that sense of self and other dissolves, and it's just here we are, you know? Or when we're in nature and finally we just really relax and we're just part of what's there. We love that. I'd like to share with you a poem I found. This is uh, written by Rumi that really describes beautifully intimacy. It's called A Mouse and a Frog. A mouse and a frog meet every morning on the riverbank. They sit in a nook of the ground and talk. Each morning, the second they see each other, they open easily, telling stories and dreams and secrets, empty of any fear or suspicious holding back. To watch and listen to those two is to understand how, as it's written, sometimes when two beings come together, Christ becomes visible. The mouse starts laughing out a story he hasn't thought of in five years, and the telling might take five years. There's no blocking the speech flow, river running, all carrying momentum that true intimacy is. Bitterness just doesn't have a chance with those two. Friend sits by friend, and the tablets appear. They read the mysteries off each other's foreheads. But one day the mouse complains, there are times when I want so bay, and you're out in the water, jumping around where you can't hear me. Times that I want communion to meet. We meet at this appointed time, but the text says, lovers pray constantly. Once a day, once a week, five times an hour is not enough. 
Fish like we are need the ocean around us. Do camel bells say, let's meet back here Thursday night? Ridiculous. They jingle together continuously, talking while the camel walks. Do you pay regular visits to yourself? Don't argue or answer rationally. Let us die and dying reply. So this dying is really what our practice is about, this letting go of the distances, the judgments, the resistances, so that we're not doing an occasional visit. We're living these lives. There's a word, bodhicitta. It means the awakened heart-mind. When we're no longer just visiting, but really living in the fullness of this moment, and then this one, and this one, and our hearts are really wide open, and there's real presence. That's bodhicitta. The Taoists describe it as, as occurring when we open fully to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So much of our practice is understood as this opening, this opening to joys and opening to sorrows. Sometimes I'll use that phrase and somebody will say, yeah, but I feel like, like I've got like 100,000 sorrows and, you know, <laughs> this small little quantity of joys. But really, opening is opening and we discover it's all there. So just to talk some about that when we open to our inner weather systems, when we begin to bring a kind attention. One of the most beautiful things to watch with people that are you know, practicing regularly or going to retreats and really bringing a sincere presence to their moments is the sense of being more gentle and kind with ourselves. I think it's the one most outstanding emergence that I see in myself and others, is we're getting kinder as we bring presence to just all the different difficult or painful moods or emotions or states that go on within us. It's as one writer put it, that our hearts break open so that we can contain the whole universe when we do this practice of being with what's difficult. In any moment that we make room for our fear, our grief, we become that kind space of awareness that is the room. We open. Thich Nhat Hanh has a phrase that when we encounter what's painful in each other, the words are, darling, I see your suffering. That in the moments that we can do that in just the kindest way to ourselves or each other, it's a moment of awakening. When we don't do that, when we're in pain internally and we don't recognize that it's dukkha, that it's suffering, instead what we do is we push it away. And the main way we push it away is with judgment. Have you noticed? 
Have you noticed how when, when anger or fear comes up, if there's not a real willingness to be with it in a kind way, instead, there's a contraction, which usually has to do with something's wrong with me for feeling this, shame about anger, feeling small about fear. We don't like ourselves so well. If we're not open to it, if we don't see the suffering, we reject it with judgment. And so many have had the experience of struggling, struggling, judging, judging, and then all of a sudden realizing, stepping back a bit in the sense of really looking and seeing how hard we've been struggling and that really we have been in pain. And there's a softening that happens in the moment of that recognition, a softening that actually makes room for the pain that's there. Do you see how we take what's basically pain in our bodies or minds and then add on the layers of judgment that keep it kind of locked in? It's very, very freeing when we can simply recognize the presence of dukkha, of pain, just to see it. It's powerful when we can do it within ourselves because compassion arises. And it's the same thing with other people. I'd like to share a personal story that was very helpful for me on that. Um, several years ago, I went for a beach weekend with my son and his dad, who's my ex-husband, and some other friends. And it was an awful weekend. I, was, I had a terrible time, and I felt that my ex-husband was treating me in an um, insensitive, uncaring way. And it was just no fun. So what I did was I took one of the cars and you know left, we left another one there and left early. And left feeling righteous and mistreated and angry and you know all those things. And muttering about it for the first 45 minutes to myself. And I was going along this road about 50 miles an hour, which is about the right speed, when a, when a car cut in in front of me at like 20 miles an hour, really slow, and so I had to slam on my brakes, and it was really, it was awful. I mean, I was really scared, and I went right up behind them, just got, just stopped in time. And I honked my horn, and I was, I was enraged. And then I saw the license plate, and it was a, a handicap license plate. Now, they shouldn't have done that, but still, there was this sense of first shame, and then just kind of wonderment that I just, it's so easy to get angry. And as soon as I realized, well, these are just humans that aren't quite as able. And you know, there was just a sense of their struggle in it. It was impossible to hold the anger. I mean, that didn't mean I still wouldn't think, I think it's not an appropriate way to drive. But all that righteous anger kind of just went. And then I realized that my honking at this handicapped license plate car was just like my anger at my ex-husband. It was like when I really looked closely, I could see his struggle in dealing with things at that particular weekend that might have been behind why he would act the way he was acting. It is so much easier to be with ourselves and each other when we can see the struggles we're all going through. It's not to say that we then give permission to other people to be abusive. Not at all. 
But to include that in our wholeness of our, of our perceptions allows us to respond from a much wiser place. I'd like to tell you that I, he was, he's watching my son tonight, and I told him before I came to class that I wanted to share that story. <laughs> and he said, sure, go ahead, but I'm going to get myself a teaching gig. <laughs> <laughs> throwing these stories back and forth, just a new level of... (laughs) Longfellow writes, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life a sorrow and a suffering enough to disarm all hostilities. If we could really see the pain and suffering in anyone, our hearts naturally open. So this is one side of it. It's with the opening to the 10,000 joys and sorrows is this willingness to be with the difficulties that arise with an open heart, with care. The Sufis put it this way, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart, and therefore each is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain, and you are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. So opening to the pain, and then opening to the joys. This life is wondrous and beautiful, too. And when we're closed down, when we're resisting, fighting, controlling, there's not an ease or openness to be able to really appreciate the life that's around us, that's within us. One of the things I notice at retreats when I'm sitting or teaching and talking to people is how when there is that quieting down, there's just this enormous opening to whatever beauty in the natural environment is there. Such a deep sense of appreciation. And why? We're there to enjoy it. We're present. There's more presence. It's an amazing thing. Because our lives are so busy, and because we're busy, you know, kind of controlling and protecting, and all we're in that project of busyness, we don't often appreciate the place we're in, whatever that place is. We don't look around so much and touch the life that's around us. So our senses get dulled some, disconnected. There's a myth that many of you know to tell you about. And then this is the myth of the Greek god Pan. And he would play day in and day out with the beautiful nymph Echo. And he was intrigued by her long, dark hair that flowed over bare shoulders, her lavender eyes, her burnished skin, and red lips. He was god of wild nature, rustic, lustful, seductive, but with goat legs and horns, so he couldn't woo Echo. And that got him very frustrated. 
and he was so frustrated that he struck her dumb, save for the power of repetition. So she roamed the woods and the pastures just repeating whatever it was that she heard, and the shepherds became incensed and seized her and tore her body to pieces, strewing them around. Gaia, the earth mother, went about quietly collecting all the pieces of Echo and then put them within herself, hid them within herself, where they still retain their repetitive powers. Pan no longer seeked revenge, he learned, and instead he committed himself, he strengthened his vows to love the land in all its wildness, dancing in the woods, in the fields, on the mountaintops, in the glens. So Echo continues to live in the nature cycle and circles of nature, and Pan is that lover within all of us for the wildness of place, of the place that we belong to. Terry Tempest Williams writes, it is time for us to take off our masks, to step out from behind our personas, whatever they might be, educators, activists, biologists, geologists, writers, farmers, ranchers, bureaucrats, and admit we are lovers engaged in an erotics of place, loving the land, honoring its mysteries, acknowledging, embracing the spirit of place. There is nothing more legitimate and there is nothing more true. So this path of waking up is to bring our presence, our moment-to-moment -moment presence alive in such a way that we really become lovers of the place that we're in, of the nature we're around, that we belong to this earth, that whatever is around your house or your apartment, whatever tree or bush or grasses or birds, that there's a connection, there's a belonging to those creatures and parts of the creation. This is a Zen master who writes, people often ask me how Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the bare trees, its warmth, its brightness, and all this completely free, completely gratuitous, simply there for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my two hands came together, and I realized I was making dasho, and it occurred to me that this is all that matters, that we can bow, take a deep bow, just that, just that. What a natural thing that we do that, that we bow to the life within us, that we bow to each other, that we bow to nature. The sense of appreciation, it's beautiful to have that. So belonging to place, to bow and to honor it, I remember when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, as many of you probably did also, in those days it was so common, we used to sit on the floor a lot in a lot of places. It didn't matter whether it was Port Authority, New York, or the halls of school, or out on a street corner. There was just this tendency to sit down on the ground or the floor. And in that, a, a sense of really belonging there. In a way, it might have had a tinge of arrogant, like, hey, we possess this place, you know. But in a deeper way, 
there's something about sitting down in the place that we're at and touching the earth and really feeling a part of it, that we belong just like that tree and that bird. We really belong here. That's quite freeing. That's quite enjoyable. There's an article that I found last year in, I think it was Yoga Journal or whatever, that's called In Praise of Loitering, that has this sense of slowing down and really being with our life and sitting down in the place that we're at. And um, I'd like to share it with you because I think it's so well done. For a long time, I've understood my meditation practice as a way to learn to live in this moment. I'm beginning to understand it also as a teaching to live in this place. Be here now. The here is just as important as the now. Sometimes I just want to be there now. It's a struggle for me to stay still, not just on my meditation cushion, but in my watershed. I love a lot of different places. I use up much more than my share of jet fuel. Environmental activism implies a sense of place. In order to love the whole shebang, it helps to love a particular spot. And in order to love a particular spot, it helps to hang around there for a while. When I first came to Berkeley 25 years ago, I thought it was ugly. The main street looked like a string of car dealerships. The hills looked brown and dead. Now the hills look golden, and I smell the flowering trees in front of the Toyota dealer. More and more, I love the ground itself. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, closer to the time I'll be buried in it, or sprinkled over it. I haven't decided yet. Especially in times of grief, my impulse is to lie down on the ground and stick my nose in the dirt. And good old gravity holds me tight. Gravity, Mom Earth's unconditional love, her way of hugging us close all the time, no matter what we do. I try to hug back, but it gets harder and harder. The ground is so often paved over, or if there's grass, there's dog shit on it. Still, one doesn't require a field of wildflowers. Concrete sidewalks get warm in the sun, and they're home to an increasing number of people. But here in Progressive Berkeley, an initiative before the city council would make it illegal to sit or lie on the sidewalk. No loitering. Loiter, to remain in a place for no apparent reason. <laughs> It seems you need an excuse to stay in one place. The default mode is to keep moving, move along, move along. But walking isn't encouraged either. Where we're really supposed to be is in a car driving, windows rolled up for the sake of air conditioning, visor down against the glare of the setting sun. Technology robs us of a sense of place. Virtual reality place replaces reality. It traps me too. For exercise, I go to a gym where there's a circuit of 15 machines, each one simulating a different kind of outdoor aerobic exercise. <laughs> I spend two minutes on the swim bench, dry as a bone. When the buzzer buzzes, I leap onto the exercise. I also pretend to paddle a canoe, climb a tree, go skiing. Two minutes each. It's so convenient. In just 30 minutes, I exercise all my muscle groups, and it's easy to park. <laughs> <laughs> When I was a kid, my friends and I owned the neighborhood. It belonged to us in a way that overrode property lines. My map of the neighborhood would have shown the good climbing trees, the holes in the fences, the places where the sidewalk was pushed up by tree roots, so you had to roller skate around them. Kids can't play outside as much anymore. It's not safe. They stay inside and watch TV, play video games, 
the lucky ones, our grown-ups drive them to a special place where they can see nature. The concept of habitat applies to us too, not just to endangered owls and wolves. We humans think we can live anywhere, swim on a machine, relate to each other by modem, but we need the wetness of water, the firmness of ground. Let's go out and loiter together. Let's get down. Let's let gravity do its thing to us. Let's sit on the sidewalk and look at the sky for no apparent reason. So this is a practice of slowing down, of not doing, of just being, of hanging out, listening, seeing, touching, feeling, life. The more we do that, the more we see the beauty that is naturally there. We see it in the nature around us. We see it in each other. We know that. When we take the time to look, we see the brightness in the eyes looking back at us. We see the sincerity in other beings, the care, the love. We actually open to appreciating other beings more when we slow down, when there's not an agenda, when we're not protecting something or trying to get something. You know what I mean? A Vipassana teacher that I uh, love and admire very much told me that from very early on, whenever he would be doing interviews at retreats or whatever, and as soon as a person would sit down in front of him, he'd immediately meditate on the Buddha nature that he was experiencing looking at him. Just the, the brightness, the light, the truth that was emanating out of that being. And that wasn't to say he didn't see the conditioning and the personality, but he would just, he would include and relate and reflect that Buddha nature. What a beautiful thing to do to encounter each other and see the God, see the spirit, see the beauty in another being. Very beautiful. It takes an openness and a quietness to do that with each other, and it takes a real courage to do that with ourselves. Our tendency, in a very deep way, is to not be open to perceiving the light the beauty of our own beings. This is written by Nelsa Mandala. Our worst fear, he writes, is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So allowing ourselves to shine, recognizing within our own being Buddha nature, that light and that love.
So this is our practice, to waking up to belonging to the life that's within us and around us. And we do it by opening to and touching what's difficult and by appreciating and seeing what's beautiful, both. Opening to the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows allows us to really belong right this moment, just what's here, to what's around us, to life, to feeling fully alive. So I'd like to end with that and just take some time now. We'll do a short guided meditation to continue in the spirit of what this talk's been about, in the spirit of belonging to ourselves and each other. So if you will, just to sit up, sitting up straight, finding a position that's comfortable but allows you to feel alert. Allowing yourself to feel that half smile of the Buddha and that spirit of caring presence, of gentleness. That your intention is to bring care, to bring kindness to whatever arises. Let the eyes be soft too, smiling in the eyes, in the mouth, and in the heart. So there's room for the life that's within you and around you. Reflecting to begin on your own life in this perhaps yesterday, today, sensing whatever vulnerability's been there, if it's been a struggle in any way, what's felt difficult, Acknowledging the vulnerability or pain that might have been a part of your experience. Seeing and sensing where there's been fear or is fear right now, discomfort. And with this recognition of dukkha, of what's been not comfortable, not easy, bringing a true compassionate awareness to hold that, caring recognition, just as you'd put your hand tenderly on the cheek of a child to soothe, to comfort, to bring that same energy to touch your own being. Caring recognition of what's been difficult, Darling, I see your suffering. That quality of awareness. To take a few deep breaths and include now in your reflection something else. That's right, breathing long and deep. And taking some moments now to see what's beautiful to see the life within you, the aliveness, the care, the loving of life, the loving of others. 
the humor, the creativity, to see what's true, bringing recognition to that and appreciation to that. Offering the prayer of metta, of loving-kindness. May at this moment I be filled with loving-kindness. May I accept the life within me. Discover the natural joy of living. May I awaken and be free. Now bringing to mind someone that's dear to you, that you'd like to offer your prayer to, sensing the presence of that person taking some moments to sense their vulnerability, the unfulfilled longings, fears, wounds that that person might carry, bringing a compassionate recognition to where that being struggles, letting your heart make room for that. And to see that being's Buddha nature, the beauty, the love of that being, what they look like when they're truly happy or peaceful, what they're like when they're feeling their love, including them in your prayer. May at this moment you be filled with loving kindness, held in loving kindness. May you feel my love now. May you accept the life within you fully. May you discover the natural joy in being alive. May you too continue to awaken and be free. opening the space of heart and mind to sense all those that have gathered here tonight. Sense each of us with our vulnerability that we each carry the wounds of just being alive in bodies with hearts that feel lost. And to sense us all that have gathered tonight also as alive and radiant in our Buddha nature, that we all come with sincerity and caring. 
And then to open the field of awareness to include others in your life, other beings you know, and sensing their vulnerability and their truth and their love, both. Opening to include all beings who in their suffering and their Buddha nature are moving towards freedom. May all beings be held in loving kindness, filled with loving kindness. May all beings accept the life within May all beings open to the natural joy in being alive. May all beings awaken and be free. Closing as we open tonight with the universal sound current of ohms.